Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit now and from the age of all ages. Amen. This morning we're going to go through a list. It's uh, it's not a step by step, but it's more like helpful hints of how not to love your enemy. But before, let me ask you a question. And this is a question that our Lord asks in the same chapter, shortly before the passage we read this morning. He says, I will ask you one thing. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy? Is it lawful? Well, the answer would depend on who's asking the question. Because right before, he walks into the temple on the Sabbath, and a man with a withered hand uh, approaches him, or he sees him, and the Pharisees are watching to see what he's going to do. Is he going to heal the man? Is he going to ignore the man? Because either way, they're going to find a way to condemn him. If he heals him, they'll condemn him for doing something on the Sabbath he's not supposed to do. And if he doesn't, in order to keep the Sabbath, uh, then he ignored a man in need and he had no compassion on him. So either way, he was going to be ignored. Uh, he was going to be condemned. But again, the question is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And we'll find that the answer to this question depends on who's asking the question. If I'm the one in need and I'm the one asking the question, then I'm going to come up with all sorts of reasons why it's okay to do this. But if I'm not the one in need, things change, priorities change. All of a sudden, all new things and factors come into play. We're called to love our enemies. But at the same time, when we read the epistle, the Catholic epistle, the conclusion says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This is in the first epistle of St. John. So we're called to love our enemies, but at the same time, not love the world. And the, uh, the saints of the church thought about this, and they said, these seem to be a little bit contradictory, if we understand that we're called to love the world in loving our enemies. But St. Augustine said, no, that doesn't mean that you love the world. We're prohibited from loving in it what the world itself loves. We're prohibited from loving what the world loves. And at the same time, we're commanded to love what the world hates. It's like a contradiction. We're prohibited to love what the world loves, and we're commanded to love what the world hates. What does the world love? 
the three things I just mentioned, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, its ability to pursue and make wealth and consume and grow and subdue, that's what the world love. It's a love. It, it is in love with itself, with its own power to destroy. And what does the world hate? The fact that it is the handiwork of God, that it is created by the hand of God. We are prohibited from loving the fault in it and are commanded to love its nature. We're commanded to love its nature because all of this is the work of God. The world loves the fault in itself and hates its nature, so we rightly love and hate it at the same time. Although we do not love what it loves and we do not hate what it hates, we love what it hates and hate what it loves. We're called to love what it hates and hate what it loves. One of the other saints commented further on this and he said that the law whether it's the Old Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament, but the law generally is focused on vengeance, on revenge. The gospel takes, takes that further. Takes it further by saying, by bestowing love for hostility, benevolence for hatred. And what we read today, love your enemies. Do good to those who do bad to you, who curse you, and say all manner of evil things uh, of you, help for the persecuted, patience for the hungry, grace of reward. How much more perfect the athlete who does not feel injury. St. Paul talks about the Christian as being an athlete who's running a race, but not every athlete runs the race seriously. Some athletes run the race and they're just happy being in the race. They're just happy participating in the race. But some athletes take it so seriously that they're in it to win the race. And that's what St. Paul is calling us to do. Not to just participate in the race, but take it seriously. If someone has two tunics and someone does not have any, we're called to give them one of our tunics. We have much and someone has little, we give to those who have little. This is, from a certain perspective, a, a type of injustice. Because the, per, the stuff I have, I worked for it, I earned it, but the stuff, but the other person didn't work for that and, didn't, and certainly didn't earn it. So why is it that I'm giving of my stuff that I worked hard for to someone who doesn't? Again, one of the saints talks about this and says that not merely do we, with joy, suffer injustice as regards to our possessions and the external things that we, we have, but also our very own life. We're called to lay down our lives for our neighbor, for our uh, enemy. Now imagine yourself hearing this. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes. And pretty much all of Israel came out to hear the words of Christ. And everybody's listening to this. And Christ is saying, love your enemy. Now immediately after he, they hear this, what are they thinking? Is he serious? We're surrounded by enemies. You look around you and you see almost all enemies. 
almost everyone you see around you is an enemy who, uh, on some level. The Romans are enemies, the Samaritans are enemies, the Pharisees who lord it over, lord their authority over the people are enemies. Everybody's an enemy. What do you mean love my enemy? Are you serious? Tell me something useful. Tell, tell me something that's going to help me and help my situation and help my family. An eye for an eye is the perfection of justice. This is as much as justice can get us. An eye for an eye. But it leaves everyone blind. An eye for an eye can never restore. But it merely makes everyone on the same ground. Whoever strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. That is the consummation of grace. This is something radical, something new that Christ came to share with us. Turn the other cheek. And St. Augustine tells us that we learn, we may learn to turn the other cheek, but what we're called to do is love the person who slaps. While eye for an eye and turning the other cheek, they both have their criteria of how we're supposed to live them and how we're supposed to um, live by them, rather. He proposed to us these two commands through the Testaments. So the Old Testament was all done through the sacrifice of animals. And the sacrifice of animals was not uh, a perfect sacrifice. It was something of a shadow of what is to come. Because justice did not, justice did not allow that someone die in the place of another. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, this is established not through the blood of an animal, but through, through the blood of Christ. One was the beginning, and the other, not the end, but the completion. One was the shadow, and the other is the reality. Eye for an eye is the shadow. Turn the other cheek, that's the reality. That's what gets us where we need to go. Eye for an eye is inward focused. Turn the other cheek, is focused on transformation, is forward-looking, looking towards the eschaton, looking towards the kingdom of God. Eye for an eye leaves everyone blind, but the second transforms, and not just transforms us into better people, but transforms me into a person. I become a person by turning the other cheek. So without further ado, here are my list of 10 points on how not to love your enemy. Interact or respond emotionally. Don't wait till you calm down. Don't wait to see if you're angry. Respond and interact emotionally. Do not practice empathy. Just stick with sympathy. When someone has, is suffering, sympathy tells us that you just say something like, I'm sorry this is happening to you. While empathy is like, I understand why this is happening to you. And you understand, you kind of walk in their shoes. Compassion takes it a step further and says, how can I help? So do not practice empathy. Do not forgive and bear the grudge. Wallow in bitterness and resentment. And number four, and this, is, this one is very satisfying, seek vengeance. Number five, 
in the opposite of what St. Augustine taught us earlier. Focus on the what and ignore the who. Focus on the fault and ignore the nature. Number six, do not find common ground. And number seven, protect your heart at all costs. Do not open it. Do not become vulnerable. And number eight, do not reach out. They know where we are. If they want to come, we're not that hard to find. Number nine, do not pray for them. In fact, in your prayer, you can ask God to do a few things to them. And number ten, separate yourself from the love of God and do it on your own. Try to love your enemy on your own, without God. You know what you end up with? If you try to do it on your own, not loving your enemy, but tolerating your enemy. Every time you hear that word tolerance, it's code for, we're trying to do this on our own, and this is the best we can do. This is someone throwing up their hands like, I don't know what else to do. This is the best I can do. Tolerate. I certainly cannot love. I'm going to give you, since you are very good, two bonus points. Believe everything you hear about your enemy. And number 12, get upset, really angry, really mad when something good happens to them. In order for us to be able to love our enemy, we have to see them the way God sees them, the way God sees us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he looked at the creation, at his work every day, day by day, the book of Genesis says God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was good. God saw that it was good, but when he was looking at creation as a whole, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed was very good. There is a certain beauty in all of us, in all of God's creation. And when we say that someone lacks beauty, others say we're not able to see the beauty that is in them, but nevertheless, we can never deny that there is beauty in them because they are created in the image of God and according to His likeness. For if prudent observers consider the single works of God, they find that individually, in their own species, they have praiseworthy measures. When we contemplate nature, we see things that are praiseworthy, things that are magnificent. Wow, this is beautiful. How much more then will this be true of all of them together? That is, of the universe that is filled with these individual things gathered into unity. For every beauty that is composed of parts is much more praiseworthy in the whole than in a part. This is St. This is Augustine on the book of Genesis. Individually, there is beauty, but there is a higher beauty that we're all called to. And this higher beauty is only achieved through unity. Unity with God, unity with one another. That's why love unites and hate separates. And the implication of looking at every person you meet as beautiful, not merely aesthetically, physically, but in their nature, means that the way we deal with people is going to have to reflect that. Reflect the fact that what I'm looking at is someone created in the image of God. Someone who is called to a higher beauty. 
Now, looking at someone as beautiful doesn't mean that this beauty is untouchable. In fact, this beauty is quite perishable. This beauty doesn't last. This beauty is called to become, to transform into a higher beauty. On its own, it will perish. It will be destroyed. Together, it will be transformed into this higher beauty. When we look at the acorn, especially towards the end of the summer season, into fall, we see many acorns on the ground. You look at them, they look nice and intricate and the design is great and perfect. And even the material, the, the way it's made and the way it works and reacts with water, it's just wonderful to look at. But that's not the entirety of its beauty. The beauty of the acorn is when it becomes the full-grown tree when it becomes what it was called to be. Now when we look at people, when we look at a child, at a baby, the baby is kind of like the acorn. Well, what is the full-grown tree? It's not an adult, but it's this transformed person through the love of God, through the church, through the sacrament, into what God is calling them to be. On its own, you see this acorn all over the place, People step on it, people walk on it, they don't recognize the beauty in it, the potential in it. And there's this saying that uh, anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in the seed. The beauty that is in it. So when you look at something that Christ is saying today, love your enemy, you gotta think, to, like, is he serious about this? Is, like, really? You want me to love my enemy? If we only can see everyone the same way God sees us. Not only will we be able to love our enemies, but also to lay down our lives for them. Glory be to God forever and ever. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.